You never tell a story that came out of a counseling situation. You never tell a story that makes you the artificial hero. In fact, if you're telling multiple stories and the end of every story is, and I put on my cape and flew by and super Christian saved the day, then your credibility is just out the door because your congregation is seeing you at your best. Yes, but they're also seeing you at your worst. You know, narcissism just doesn't smell good anywhere, uh, not even in the pulpit. And so, but never talk about counseling because if you do, you will not have a counseling ministry. And that may be your goal. Maybe you don't want one, but people, people need good biblical counseling and they need encouragement from their pastor. Hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast, episode 309. I'm your host, Mike Niglia. Happy New Year. If you're listening to this on the week that it's come out, I wish you uh, all the best as you are planning the new year or working your way into 2024. Well, this is a rebroadcast. This comes from the the dark, distant past of 2023. This is, uh, yeah, one of my favorite episodes from last year. Had a, a fantastic and like incredibly deep and I think stirring conversation with Dr. Jim Wilson. Uh, we speak about like finding sermon illustrations and using like the best kind of illustrative stories and examples for our, our messages in our preaching. Then kind of in the second half, we get into some real heart issues. You see, uh, Jim lost his voice for a period of, I think, eight or nine months. He wasn't able to speak. Uh, we we talk about how what that does to someone's heart and soul and mind when they've been called to, to preach the gospel and to teach God's word, but then are unable to uh, use their words to do so. Uh, It's really soul-stirring, and I hope that it brings encouragement and perspective to you as you listen in, either for the second time, if you heard it earlier in the year, or if you're one of our new listeners, this is a great way to start the year, just appreciative of what we have and confident in our identity in Christ. Uh, Jim and I share about lessons that we learned through times of incapacitation and being unable to do what we're made to do. I'm going to let you listen to this blast from the past. And at the end, I want to invite you to get involved in what Expositors Collective is doing. All right. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Expositors Collective podcast. Honored to be speaking with Dr. Jim Wilson. Uh, Good morning. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Brother Mike. I've been looking forward to this day. You you know what I'm looking forward to? Being called Brother Mike. Nobody, Nobody ever calls me Brother Mike. I think it's really nice. Well, it's a Southern thing, but I also am convinced it's the highest title we have. We're brothers in Christ and sons of the living God and and so it's a respectful uh, title. It feels that way. It really does. So uh, apologies for referring to you as doctor. Um, you'll be brother from, from now on, uh, if that's okay. Brother Jim. Thank you. Brother Jim. Uh, brother Jim, when was your first sermon? I imagine it was quite a few decades ago, but do you remember mm-hmm. the first time that you preached God's word in public? Okay, in public. Yes, uh, absolutely. I was a teenager in high school preached on John 12, 24, about a corn of wheat falling on the ground of die and dying. And the most memorable thing about the sermon uh, was uh, the experiencing of the text before I preached it and came under great conviction that the very thing that I was seeing in others that I was wanting to preach about was so evident in my own life. And so my sermon began with a sincere apology for the duplicitous way that uh, I had been living and uh, asked the church for prayer, forgiveness. And then I, I preached on the importance of uh, a genuine faith and in, in, in dying, dying to self and living for Christ. And um, it, it really was a turning point and was... I mean, it was a turning point in many ways. Everybody remembers their first sermon. 
Sure. Uh, but uh, the thing that I learned from it most was I can never preach a text I haven't experienced. Understanding it is one thing, experiencing it is another. And uh, try to continue that discipline to this day. You know, I often would tell people never apologize at the start of a sermon. Uh, oftentimes people sure. out of insecurity or nervousness, they'll kind of say, oh, guys, I'm not really as prepared as I could be, you know, and they kind of apologize on behalf of their lack of preparation. I think that's a, it's a horrible way to start. But mm -hmm. apologizing for failure to live up to this this text, what a an actual honest moment of vulnerability that hopefully set the stage for all those to come next. Well, I wasn't telling you what happened so that anybody would emulate it. I was sure. just telling you what happened. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no doubt. I think I think one of the biggest mistakes we make is wasting away that in initial attention yeah. that we get. And oftentimes guys do that with their prayer where they get up and pray, oh, Lord, let me uh, let me not make any mistakes and let me be filled with your spirit. And, you know, and I tell my students and coaching clients that prayer belongs on Saturday. Mm -hmm. If you're mm -hmm. going to pray before you preach. So, I mean, your point is well taken. Uh, in, in that case, it was uh, not because I was practicing good homiletics. I didn't know any homiletics. Yeah. I was a teenager preaching. And so yes. there you go. And certainly, Brother Jim, I'm not trying to correct you. I'm saying if if there ever is an appropriate, um, honest apology, it's it's that more than, yeah, just kind of a nervousness or, or trying to kind of win the audience over on your side, which is what sometimes people are, are use those kind of. Well, they're trying to get comfortable. Yeah. Whenever we do that, when we talk about ourselves at the beginning, we're trying to get comfortable with the people. And then that leads itself to oftentimes a triple introduction. Hmm to where we introduce for 10 minutes and we don't even read the text until minute 15. And, uh, you know, we've lost it by then. Anyway, good point. Of course. All right. So that was decades ago. Um, in, in your growth as a, a preacher or Bible teacher, uh, what are some significant changes that have happened over these, these decades? Something that maybe you used to do, but that you've consciously stopped? Or are there any practices that you've consciously added to your sermon preparation and delivery. Okay, Brother Mike, let me fast forward a little bit and to say, uh, you know, that was in the 70s. During the 80s and 90s, I was convinced that I needed to make the Bible relevant. And that when I preached, in fact, in college, I majored, uh, double majored religion and, and speech communication and really felt that, that I needed to preach in such a way that I made the text relevant. And today, I no longer believe that. I, I don't believe you can make the text relevant any more than you can make water wet. It is relevant. Uh, Bonhoeffer says its relevance is axiomatic. And so today, I preach from the position believing that this text is relevant. It is life-changing. It is going to transform lives. And the best thing that I can do is get out of the way of the text. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't need to be explained or applied, or we don't need to help them experience the text. We need to do all of that. But when the starting point is in the sufficiency of Scripture, it makes a big difference in, in the uh, homiletics. Yeah. Well, what, what talked you out of that? What, what caused you to arrive at that conclusion? That maybe you had, let's say, in the '70s, and then lost in the '80s and '90s. But, but yeah, what what kind of alerted you to the reality of of what you've just said? Well, just the coming to grips with the sufficiency of Scripture. I mean, I'm an inerrantist, and I believe it, and don't apologize for it. But then started applying that theology to homiletics, and and brother Mike, the big shift came when I was working with some Bible scholars on my book, Impact Preaching. I worked with three Bible scholars where we took um, uh, we took the practice of hermeneutics and the practice of homiletics and tried to marry them. Because what happens in the academy is one is an expert in one side of that line, but not the other. Right. Uh, and maybe it's a secondary skill. And so as we struggled 
believing that we needed to be consistent. We needed to keep the shape of the sermon consistent with the shape of the text. And as we struggled together and went back and forth with drafts about how to do that, me knowing more about homiletics, them knowing more about hermeneutics, uh, we wrestled with it. And then that truth just emerged uh, that this text can be depended on. And we need to preach it with confidence, knowing that it will change lives. And if we'll just get out of its way, it'll do its work. So instead of believing that I can enhance the text, mm-hmm. I now believe all I can do through my sinful uh, sin nature and fallen man, though redeemed, the only thing I can do the text is make it worse. I can't make it better. Yeah, It is beautiful. It is pure. It is perfect. And so now my task is, okay, how do I stay out of its way? While I'm given the explanation it needs, why I give the cultural context that it needs, why why I do the task of the preacher, because it is the power of God uh, that transforms people's life. One way to put it is this past Easter, uh, when I preached, we have been as a teaching team going through the Gospel of Mark, and we highlighted the resurrection on Easter Sunday, as I'm sure everyone else did. Uh, However, what I did was a quick survey recap of what we've been studying through Mark and how the disciples didn't get it. Three times Jesus told them he was going to die. He was going to be buried. He's going to raise from the dead. They didn't get it. The women that went to the tomb, they didn't get it either. They brought something, spices uh, to anoint him with. They They weren't expecting to greet the resurrected Lord. They were expecting to find a corpse. And so when it came to the time where most of the time we give proofs for the resurrection, here's what I said. I said, I'm going to give you one proof because I had been highlighting Peter in Mark's story. And I talked about how Peter, uh, the church historians tell us how he died and that he did not renounce his faith at the end, as did the other disciples did not either. But then here's what I said. I said, the only proof you really need is the spirit of God right now testifying to you that this is true. And if you believe that it's true during the prayer time, just walk up to a member of the prayer team and say, God told me this is true. What do I do? And uh, in the two services, we had at least one person in each service do that. Now, that's trusting the word, trusting the work of the spirit, instead of believing I need to convince anybody about anything. And so that's the big change, Brother Mike. And it's been amazing uh, watching how people respond uh, when there's less of Jim and more of Jesus. Yeah, so it sounds like you are you're presupposing that the power of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus has its own internal apologetic power that it can convince more than uh, an external kind of list of reasons why it's reasonable to believe. Well, and I, I don't want to pit those t- th- two things in juxtaposition to one another because when you look at the proofs for the existence of God. Why not just say all of them are, are functioning? Sure. But at that time, I mean, we need to be, there's nothing wrong with an apologetic approach, and there is nothing wrong with showing it's reasonable to believe. However, people come to faith in Christ by the movement of the Spirit of God in their life. And so uh, my position is that the Word of God and the testimony of the Holy Spirit is going to work to transform people's life, not three easy steps to that. Brother Mike, we minimalize people's lives when we uh, take our our contrived uh, systems and force them on the text. And now we, we do a sermon on how to accomplish this or how to do that. When that wasn't the author's original intent, Staying out of the way of the text means we let Mark speak when we're preaching from Mark. So one of the ways we do that is um, being careful 
uh, how we use the synoptics when we're telling Mark's story. Uh, we use the synoptics not uh, to help get at the truth. In other words, a lot of times when we preach, we, we do this thorough study to say, okay, I want, to, I want to preach the truth of this, so I need to get outside sources to do that. No, no the fact that Mark didn't tell us that um, uh, Joseph of Arimathea was a follower of Christ. Yeah. And that he didn't agree with what the Sanhedrin said gives credence to Mark's story. It's like whenever we're at a dinner party and we start telling a story and a spouse interrupts us and adds other details. Well, we feel like, will you let me tell this story? And so if we trust the text, we let Mark tell the story. And if we mention those other things, it's only to highlight what Mark is doing in the narrative. So it's a real deep trust in the text is my answer to your question, Brother Mike. Yeah, yeah. And do you think even even the title synoptic is a little bit unhelpful, that it kind of implies that only when we have the three of them together do we understand everything? Well, of course, in a hermeneutical spiral, we need to move out from uh, the, the text that we have. And so it is helpful. My point is to get back to the text. Yeah. So, um, you know, and, and in particular, when you're preaching wisdom literature, this is a great challenge. I mean, there's a synoptic issue. But when you're looking at optimistic wisdom literature, you need to balance it with what other optimistic wisdom literature says and what the pessimistic wisdom literature yeah. says. Yeah. And then the greater counsel of God. But you got to end up back with the text. Yeah. Yeah. There's... um. In my in my tradition, or it was something that was somewhat popular maybe 20 years ago, um, people doing um, chronological studies through the life of Jesus, um, uh -huh. pulling in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then you have kind of this two or three year series um, that's pulling through all these things. And the chronology is the most important thing. And the the things are... are and. I'll never do that. <laughs> I don't think that's that's the, the most helpful. I think it's good. Maybe maybe somebody should do like a, a, a read through of those. But yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah, let Mark speak. Uh, Mark is aware of these things. You know, John John was there, and John chose to highlight certain things and and not other things. And so we should allow them to to speak and have the, retain their voice. Well, if Mark was a visitor in your church and you were preaching from the Gospel of Mark, would you turn the pulpit over to him? I think I would. I'm just saying we got to do that every Sunday yeah. to the extent that we can. And, I, you know, I, whether or not you can know authorial intent or not, uh, you know, there are critics of that approach. I think I think their view is overdone. It's a stretch. No, we can't totally know anybody's intent, but we can't ignore what we do know. And so yeah. uh, anyway, that's the greatest thing that I've learned since then. Yeah, well, that's that's a great contribution, and you know, we we scheduled this to talk about one thing, and I certainly don't mind that we're talking about all these other things as well. What a welcome, uh, what a welcome diversion. Uh, but I I came here to talk to you about about your book, um, illustrating well, preaching sermons that connect, uh, published by our friends at at Lexham Press, and. I, I got to say, this is kind of my introduction to your writing, and it's been kind of the, the tip of the spear where I've, I've learned about so much other stuff. And I certainly plan on reading Impact Preaching, and then who knows, maybe grabbing you and getting you again for more conversations. But I'd love to speak at length, if possible, about illustrations. Uh, sure. What's a sermon illustration, and why do we need it? Well, we need illustrations for several reasons, because communicating is a difficult task. Um, it's, it's a difficult task just getting an idea from my head to your head and for the exact meaning that I intend uh, to be experienced by you. I mean, and, and that's the reason we do feedback loops and we ask clarifying questions is because it is just a difficult task. Well, when you put on top of that, that 
This is an ancient book that was written by multiple authors in different genres and different literary forms, some of them not closely resembling our current version of that form. Hebrew poetry is not modern poetry. Uh, and so uh, because of all of those things, the customs are different. The cultures are different. Uh, it requires for the people to be able to experience the unfamiliar. The bridge is often to give them this, something that is familiar to them, something they relate to currently, to help them to be able to understand, apply, or experience the text. And so we need illustrations to accomplish good communication. Yeah. Yeah. And what is there an argument or why should sermons include those? So you mentioned, you know, communication needs it, but we, we might agree that, that a sermon is a, a special or almost a unique sure. form of communication. Um, what, what's the case that a, a sermon teaching through a Bible passage should include these as well? Well, because the Bible passage is going to have references to things that will not be familiar to your audience. Okay. Um, especially if if the audience is not uh, biblically literate, and and brother Mike, I just assume that when I preach today, and biblical literacy creates its own problem because people come with a preconceived notion of, oh, I've studied that before. Mm. Uh, okay, what mm. are we gonna what 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 do we need to pick up at the store after after church today? Uh, so uh, they they help with creating interest. They help with shining shining the light on the text. Uh, they help by having having the people have a mental picture of what it is uh, we're talking about. They bridge build bridges from there to here. Um, they um, help uh, bring a, a mental break from the rigorous work of exegesis. So they function in many ways uh, to help the sermon become more relatable. Okay. And you, thank you. First off, I agree. I just wanted to, I figured you could take some pushback. You've, you've obviously thought about this at, at length. Um, you mentioned a couple different kinds of illustrations, you know, like a bridge going back and forth. Some things shine light. Uh, what are the, the the categories of illustrations that you think are 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 worth considering? Well, anything that works in your in your uh, in your congregational setting. Uh, the study that we did for illustrating well uh, sought to identify, um, to define. And then to study how popular each one of them are being used, uh, you know, how, how often those are being used. And so we were able to identify and define eight different types of illustrations. Four of them fell into the frequently used cluster. Yeah. Four of them were not being used as much. And so of those top uh, four of, of, of those illustrations uh, were uh, fresh illustrations. Uh, were uh, and the fresh illustrations uh, uh, purpose is is or, or or the fresh illustration helps to show an intersection between faith and culture. Mm -hmm. uh, it's what I call the secondary function of it. Also, the biblical illustration, which exposes the people to the full counsel of God, because you're telling a story from the Bible, uh, and so you're not just illustrating the text, but you're helping to teach more of the text. There's personal illustrations where a preacher will talk about uh, a life event uh, that uh, helps uh, the audience to connect with the text. And then hypothetical illustrations where you stimulate the, uh, the imagination by uh, raising a hypothetical issue or a series of hypothetical issues. So those were the top four that we found that were being used. Yeah, and it, it, this is not a, a competition, you know, um, but uh, which of these are you most frequently grabbing? 
Will Fresh Illustrations is is my default because you know for an illustration to be familiar uh, to be effective it needs to be familiar it needs to be clear it needs to be interesting it needs to be appropriate and so because fresh illustrations are out of current events and should be in the congregation's consciousness they're already familiar yeah so if you put that in juxtaposition with historical illustrations the big challenge in using them is now you have to describe and explain the context of that historical illustration if the people aren't already familiar with it. Yes. Yes. Great point. So my personal favorite is fresh illustrations. And I've spent uh, a good bit of energy in writing those and curating those and, uh, and using those when I preach. Yes. And on freshministry.org is uh, those illustrations that are there, would would many of these fall in the fresh illustration category? Well, when they were written, they would. Okay. But I've been doing it for 20 plus years. And so, uh, and and your listeners can go there. There's no charge for using them. I've taken uh, what I've been paid for multiple times and uh, now are just making it free to people. But those uh, at one time were fresh. So it's it's not how old it is, but yes. whether or not the people know about it. Yes. Yes. For example, I'm looking here at uh, Da Vinci Code. So that was right. quite the talking point at one point. At one but point, not, but not so not much. Anymore. Yeah, 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 yeah. But so, yeah, I think I, I love what you're saying that it's not necessarily that it comes from that week's paper, but it's what is in the consciousness of of our people that we're able to just draw on that really quickly without having to explain, well, you know, Caesar Augustus or, you know, um, Alexander the Great was doing this and this and this, and you have to build a world for them to understand, but you're able to just currently mention this celebrity or this event. Is that what you mean by fresh? Yes. And so, and so let me tell you how I use my own website. So uh, when I'm preparing a sermon, uh, I'll go there and it's got a topical listing and the freshest comes first and I start reading through them. And then they remind me of something that I've seen in the news lately. Yeah. And then, uh, or a current event, and then I write a new one, but it helps stimulate my thoughts. So uh, back when I started this uh, at the turn of the millennium, uh, there were no illustration services. You could, you know, the internet was in its infancy stage. And the hope was that what I was re- using in my sermons, other people could use. And, you know, the scriber base uh, grew quickly. And uh, before long, I have folks around the world that was that was using it. Um, uh, but then that became, in my mind, a bit unrealistic that they would be needing the same illustration I needed. So what we did was we produced 30 of them a month and they were fresh. And, uh, you know, let me tell you the, the real problem though, is when you find a good illustration and you try to force it into the text. Ah, I see. Yes. Yes. And so the way I use this now is it becomes an idea starter for me to go out and write my own. So, uh, sometimes I reuse one that I've written and curated and edited. You know, some of mine are uh, books or uh, illustration books are published in Logos. So a lot of times they'll just pop up uh, as I'm doing research on something. And sometimes I can use them, Mike, because some of them have a feel. They stand the test of time. Yeah. Um, but uh, more times than not, they're just an idea starter for me. Okay, well, in, in the show notes, there'll certainly be a, a link to this. And yeah, the, the listeners can can peruse and either it will, yeah, as you mentioned, spark something something better, no offense to yours, but something that's more suited to, to their own congregation and to the message that they're working on. Um, or they can certainly buy your book, 300 Illustrations, uh, which uh, has more of the same. Now, there's a uh, another category of, of uh, illustrations, which I think... There's, yeah, fresh, there's biblical, and um, then there's personal illustrations. Right. Uh, personal illustrations has been somewhat of a of a frequent theme that's come up on this show over the years, sure. um, because 
it's powerful when done right and then can be quite cringy when when done wrong. Uh, do you have any advice on sure. how, to, how to tell stories about ourselves in a way that actually does help the text? Because at the beginning of our conversation, you talked about the importance of letting the text speak, you know? Right. But then if we put ourselves right in the middle, anyway, I, I bet you have some thoughts. Sure. And a personal illustration is a story that's based on the preacher's own experience. The position of the use of that illustration is very important. So illustrations function in large part uh, to accomplish the goal of the portion of the sermon you're in. In other words, the introduction, uh, you know, in the introduction of the sermon, we're establishing a connection, we're creating interest, we're orienting the listener, the conclusion, we have the big application, the call to action, the body of the sermon is usually more teaching, more didactic in nature. And so if you're at the beginning of the sermon, uh, you're wanting to create interest. You want that connection with the people. And, um, you know, there is a notion that one way to do that is to talk about yourself. The problem with that is it splits the focus. So especially if it's uh, personal in nature, if there's a hint of scandal mm-hmm. in it, mm-hmm. uh, if it is uh, letting folks in to, uh, into private portions of your life, okay. if, if, if you go there, then people may get hung up at that spot. And so there's a special caution against using a personal illustration at the front of the sermon. Now, Stanley and Jones in Communicating for the Change say the opposite of that. Uh, they want to present themselves as someone that's entering into the same struggle as the people are. And I think that humility needs to be present in our preaching all of the time. Um, but we need to take care not to distract from the text. However, uh, Brother Mike, uh, personal illustrations were used more than any other type of illustration in the sermons that we studied. Now, it wasn't a consequential uh, amount, but it was used very frequently. Uh, So they are being used. Yeah. Why why do you think so? Well, because they want to, preachers want to be relatable. Yeah. And it helps to do that. And also, there has been a big push in the last, 15 or 20 years towards transparency. Yeah. And and transparency is helpful, but how transparent? Right. Yeah. And there's limits to everyone's transparency. And so how far do we go? Now, if your primary if the primary reason you're preaching the sermon is for transformation and it's necessary to demonstrate the transformation that is happening or has happened in your own life, then fine. Yeah. Uh, But uh, there's just special caution. And, um, you know, for an illustration to be effective, it needs to be familiar, clear, interesting, and appropriate. And so with personal illustrations, the question is, how appropriate is it to share that information about yourself? And is it going to take people offline? Now, I, I know I'm, I'm I'm swimming upstream right now, Brother Mike, because I yeah. know that personal illustrations are just so popular. And I'm not saying don't use them. Yeah. I'm saying use them well. Yeah. 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 Hey, listen, I know you feel that way. And I, I, I set you up to say that. So, yeah, I and that's not for controversy's sake. Yeah, I you're. I appreciate even your optimistic view of personal illustrations, you know, trying to find the best motive, which is people want to be relatable. I suppose me a little bit more cynical. I just think, well, it's because they're the easiest, you know, it doesn't involve having to to go reach for any books or, or connect it with another passage of scripture. It's just, it's just your own memory bank. So you pull something out. So let's harness that. Okay. No, I don't think that's cynical. Okay. I think that's helpful. And I want to harness that. So knowing that you can pull it quickly, why not use it as a spontaneous illustration when you see that the one you planned didn't work? Ah, okay. 
In other words, don't be intentional to bring it in. The other thing that happens is that we have a cluster of major events in our life that we tend to talk about often. Sure, absolutely. Yep. And one one of the ministries I have is I as I coach preachers. And in my my coaching clients, when I'm with them for six months, I already know all their stories. Mm, yeah. And then by the seventh and eighth month or the third year, you know, I've had some clients for that long. I know where they're going. Well, how, what about their congregation? Yep. Yep. And you also mentioned in your chapter, you mentioned that it's not only their story, because um, so many of our of our personal illustrations, rarely do they take place between us and God alone. Usually yeah. it involves us and our spouse or us and our kids or us and our family of origin. So that is a whole separate level of, I don't know, ethical caution, because if we're telling stories that involve other people, uh, we're, we're trotting, basically trotting our kids up in front of the, the church again and again and again and again. So any thoughts or about using stories that are our stories, but they're actually not only our stories, they're other stories as well. I have strong convictions about that, that the story needs to have actually happened. Yeah, granted. Hopefully that's yeah. not controversial, <laughs> but of course. Well, it needs to have happened. Uh, you need permission to tell it. Yeah. You never tell a story that came out of a counseling situation. Yep. You never tell a story that makes you the artificial hero. Yeah. In fact, uh, if you're telling multiple stories and the end of every story is, and I put on my cape and flew by and super <laughs> Christian saved the day. Yeah then your credibility is just out the door because your congregation is seeing you at your best. Yes, but they're also seeing you at your worst. And it just, you know, narcissism just doesn't smell good anywhere, yeah. uh, not even in the pulpit. And so, but never talk about counseling because if you do, you will not have a counseling ministry. Yeah, And that may be your goal. Maybe you don't want one. <laughs> but people people need good biblical counseling and they need yes. encouragement from their pastor. And never, 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 never did I mention that you should never talk about your kids. Never. Okay. You say, but I asked their permission and I'll just tell you, your minor children don't have the capacity to consent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The power dynamic is such out of balance that they'll say yes, uh, but you can't. And if you're going to talk about your wife, then she better not have made any mistakes in that story. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you're speaking as as a pastor's son yourself. Yes. So I think yes. that's probably some of the passion about not being used as an illustration may come from experience. I don't want to pry or, or but I sure. Think and I write about that some. And most of the time, it didn't matter to yes. me. Uh, but, you know, there are some stories that bother me and I yeah. don't, you know, I don't want to pay a therapist to find out why it bothers me, but I shouldn't have to pay a therapist to listen to my daddy preach. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and I've asked my own children about this and most of the time it didn't bother them, but sometimes it did. Yeah. So I say, guys, let's just not do it. Let's just not do it. Yeah. And so again, again, maybe the, the cynic in me is like, well, it's just the easiest thing. And that's why, why people use it. But I think, and you know, you, you're more optimistic, but I think that it takes a little bit, a few extra steps, but it's just a, a more ethical all around to not have this be the first go-to. And it's not something cute your kid said at breakfast yesterday morning that is easiest because it's just right there at the forefront of your brain, but serve everyone. <laughs> help as many people understand this. And it's not about what's easiest for you. Good communication is making it easy for the hearer to understand, not just easy for you to get off things off your chest. Well, and brother Mike, you cannot not tell your story. And that's one of the difficult things with this issue is your story is going to come out. If you're doing well, it's going to come out. If you're not yep. doing well, it's going to come out. You cannot not tell the story. All I'm saying is let's, let's not do it on purpose. Sure. Yeah. And certainly let's not do it to our to our family. We just don't need to go there. Yes. All right. Well, this is something that I could talk to you a lot longer about. <laughs> but I, I, I want to maybe move like you, you mentioned, uh, you know, speaking of personal illustrations in sermons, 
um, in in the book towards towards the end, something really gripped me when you mentioned like something that took place in your own life that impacted, I suppose, your ability to to preach for <laughs> a period of time. And I remember exactly where I was when I read that, and I remember just like you know the uh, the deep connection that I had with with you. I never met you. I never knew the sound of your voice. But the the story that you told about um, was a period of months where you were unable to to speak at all. Um, I was on the edge of my seat reading it, and you encouraged me by the work of God, not in a miraculous healing, but in Him uh, looking after you and and helping with your heart and dealing with identity issues in that. So. Right. Would you mind sharing a, a little bit of some of the things that you learned as a, a preacher with no voice? Uh, sure, Brother Mike. Um, I, I lost my voice to a surgery to correct cancer, to, to remove a thyroid. Um, and the surgeon tapped on the recurrent laryngeal nerve. And today I'm speaking to you with one working vocal cord. The other one is paralyzed. I've had two surgeries to co- uh, correct that involve putting in a silicone implant that pushes the paralyzed vocal cord over and a stitch that pulls it tight. And because all the surgeon did was to tap on it, he didn't cut it, uh, which in the, the illustration, I mentioned that twice he positioned his scissors to cut it and his hand wouldn't move. It was a miraculous um, thing in my view. Because he didn't cut it, there's enough energy flowing there that the vocal cord is healthy. The doctor said it's it's you know it's there's blood flow there, and so you know that's still happening. Uh, however, um, I, I could not speak without this this surgery, and so I was young. I'd finished my doctorate by then. I was in a church. Uh, that uh, was picking up steam. It was a, a, a turnaround church situation that uh, was uh, uh, was plateaued and needed to grow. And I was young and ambitious and full of vim and vigor. And uh, I thought, uh, you know, I was all that and God's gift and um, felt a lump, had the surgery, lost my voice. And so for nine months, I was unable to speak, and uh, it was uh, it was a difficult time. In, not just because of hey, what am I going to do? But my preaching wasn't what I did; it was who I was. You know, you asked me at the beginning when did I first preach in public. Well, the first time I preached wasn't in public. It was to my cousins and my siblings and to the chickens. And to, I mean, I, I since I was about nine or 10, I knew that's who I was. And so there was just this real identity crisis that I faced that if I can't preach, what good am I? And uh, that became a stimulus for me more of my writing ministry. And I kind of leaned into that because I was thinking, you know, I'm going to need, I'm going to need to develop this skill and that's how I communicate. So just describing it, it was a very dark time and I didn't just thought I was losing my ministry I flirted with walking away from faith, period. And I remember walking right up to the edge of unbelief and trying to take the step over. And I just couldn't. I mean, like the disciples, well, where would I go? I just couldn't. And I learned about the goodness of God. And I met the God I'd been preaching about. And I pressed into him. And I cried out. And he met me in my pain. And so, I mean, the story unfolds in my 
My voice is restored. I'm able to preach again. I prayed Jeremiah, the first chapter, Lord, put your words in my mouth. And, and Brother Mike, every, every Sunday when it's my turn to preach, I'm just so grateful. Uh, one of our elders this week preached, and I, I coach all the preaching team, and I've done three coaching sessions with him in each before this sermon, and each time I, I give him an assignment. And in this assignment, I gave him, okay, here's what we're going to work on. This week, I want you to work on enjoying yourself when you preach. And so after the service was over, oh, he did such a marvelous job preaching. It was so good. I put my hands on his arms and looked him in the eyes, and I called him by name. I said, did you feel God's pleasure? Did you feel God's pleasure? I said, I know that sermon was your gift to us, and it was your gift to God. But it was God's gift to you. Did you feel God's pleasure? And he smiled, and he said, yes, I did. But, Mike, I feel that pleasure every time I preach because I know that if God doesn't put his word in my mouth, literally, I'm not going to be able to preach. And so uh, the doctor did a surgery, and God did a jerk after me on me. Yeah. He changed yeah. my heart. Wow. And uh, I'm just so grateful. Uh, every time I get to stand and, and deliver God's word and fully expect that somebody's life is going to change, not because of me, but because of the text. Yeah. 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 Brother Jim, I, I read that and it was, you know, about a, a page and a half. And I just, there's, there's so much, there's so much more to that, you know, nine months is a long time. And I, I didn't know about the, the, the edge of faith. I think, I don't think that was included no. um, in there. Thank you for yeah, bringing, bringing us into that, that holy experience. And I'm, I, for one, I'm thankful that you have that vocal cord singular left uh, yes, most of us have two, but you're doing more with one than many people do with both of them. Uh, and you're using yeah, the, those words that, yeah, as he did with Jeremiah, he's doing with you and you're delivering his word with power and clarity. I appreciate that. I was um, jogging five years ago, uh, six years ago now, and I got hit by a car. And mm -hmm. so I had... Uh, a very, you know, dangerous head injury. And so in the recovery months, I could like, I could read, but I could only just, you know, I'd, I'd get a headache if I read more than a page um, wow. and I could speak, but I found my words all jumbled up. So I think that's maybe why I was so on the edge of my seat with, with your, with your story uh, going through that little bit of a um, existential crisis, similar and and probably a, a miniature version of of your own where it's like well listen like i what do i do for a li i i read and i talk for a living and and now mm -hmm. like i i can barely read and i can barely talk and so in addition to the thoughts of like well how am i going to provide for my family it also is like what good am i to the kingdom of god right. if i can't if i can't read or talk that's what i do yeah. and, um and the answer so, is because you're his son exactly exactly Exactly. And that's one of those wonderful, wonderful gifts from that very painful season. It's that I'm not here to create content. I'm here to, to be beloved of God. Brother Mike, let me comment on what just happened, because this is the power of a personal illustration. I tell my story, it triggers yours. And so when we use personal illustrations well, when we preach, the focus is not on me but it becomes on the person that's listening and the relationship with God. And so the way uh, that I try to use these well is to weave them into a narrative. And the, you read the illustration of a sermon about Zachariah who couldn't speak for nine months and of I course, couldn't yeah. speak for nine months. And so I married the stories together 
And it's last time I preached on the text. I didn't preach it that way. It was one time I preached on the text. I preached it that way. Now, they're powerful. And because they're powerful, they should be used sparingly. Yeah. Because if you use it inconsequentially, and it's your golf game, your last fishing trip, it's something that really doesn't matter. Then when you do need to talk about yourself, it, it, it doesn't have the same impact as it does uh, when, when you really do, when you really do need to self-disclose and you need to tell your story. And that is a function of the Holy Spirit in the preparation stages. In fact, what I'm going to work on right after we finish this is next Sunday's sermon. And I've got an illustration I've been working on for four hours already this week, and I'm going to finish writing it, and then I'm going to decide whether or not to use it. And the most courageous thing I can do is to delete it if it's not going to be helpful. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, and and I, I believe you would, right? You have to. Yeah. You have to. Yeah. Because when illustrations are done poorly, they hijack the event and do an anti-teaching. Uh, they do not invite people into God's presence. And so, I mean, it, th- these are the best of times and the worst of times. Illustrations are the most effective tools. And the thing that's wrecking our preaching, we got to get it right. Yeah. So handle with care, huh? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah. And I'd rather not do it than do it poorly. Yeah. And, you know, I, I had a few more questions, but I, I think it almost would be kind of crass to, to, to go more into the, the nuts and bolts of, of this or that. I think you've kind of like led us up to like the, the precipice of, of, of worship. And I, I, could I ask you to just to, to pray? <laughs> could you just like pray for, uh, you know, for, for me and pray for those that are, that are listening that, that, that are hearing this and we want to do it right. But more than anything, maybe that that identity piece of even if we do it, even if we mess up the next six Sundays in a row, doesn't um, cause us to become unchilded or un unadopted uh, of God's kindness. Exactly, and I'm going to do exactly what you said. I'm going to pray for you. It's going to be my great honor. I'm also going to give you a piece of unsolicited advice. Okay. Remember, not every sermon is your best sermon. Just get over yourself if you mess up. Move on. Uh, because not there's, by definition, not every sermon is your best sermon. And uh, you are a child of God. Attempt to do your best. And sure. when you fall short, do better next week. Uh, because it will be a lifetime of learning. It's a lifetime of learning. And uh, the day I stop learning, please, please don't invite me into the pulpit again. I actually have people that I've given permission to watch me and tell me when it's time. Really? So it's, yes. it's not just up to the elders at, at Lakeshore City Church, but you've, you've pulled in? Yes. Okay. Yes. Tell me when it's time. Tell me, tell me if I'm no longer benefiting the work, um, because that's the goal. Let's pray as you ask. Yeah, yeah. Father, I'm so grateful for Brother Mike and his ministry to continue a conversation about effective preaching. We thank you, Lord, for the high calling you have on his life and on the life of his listeners. I thank you, Lord, for their desire to rightly divide the word of truth. And I pray, Lord, that all of us will be faithful to the text that we will be spirit-filled, that we will be guided, that we will stay out of the way of the text so that it can do its work, that we'll not be a bullfighter trying to distract, but instead, Lord, that we'll be pointing to the cross, that people can see the only hope that is there. Father, I receive upon those who are listening the power of your Holy Spirit to help them to discern and give them strength, give them courage, give them purpose. And when they stand to preach, Lord, 
give them a single-minded vigor that they do their best work and then leave it all out there and then depend upon you to do your work of moving in the lives and the hearts of the listeners. Father, we thank you for the transformative power of your word, and we thank you for the honor and the privilege and the joy of being able to stand before your people and declare it to them. Father, we are so grateful for the high calling you've given us. We're grateful, Lord, to be in your co-worker, that you're working through us to bring redemption to the world. But, Father, I'm most grateful to be the object of your redemption, to be your child, to have experienced the grace that you so freely give. And I'm grateful, Lord, for Brother Mike and his listeners. And I pray that they will preach and teach and minister out of that sonship. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Uh, Thanks again, Brother Jim. Thank you for your honesty and openness. Uh, You've served me well, and all who are listening in, uh, we've benefited from this and, and from you. Well, hey, as we're beginning 2024, uh, Expositors Collective has plans. We're, we're taking this show on the road. We've got some dates on the calendar. And if you're interested, I'd love to, to tell you about some of them. Uh, later on in this month, uh, myself and the rest of the leadership team, uh, Dr. John Whitaker, Dr. Alan Stoddard, Brian Stupar, Nick Cady. Uh, we're going to be gathering together for a time of prayer and planning. We're also going to be recording some pretty cool like training video resources, uh, something that your church might be able to benefit from as we work through content to help local up-and-coming teachers possibly in your church. We want to help them grow in their personal study and public proclamation of God's word. So be on the lookout for our online video curriculum content that we're going to be making available soon. Uh, Then in February, myself and Nick, we're going to be going to Belgrade, Serbia and doing kind of a a smaller version of our in-person training event. Uh, We want to be investing in some Serbian pastors, some Hungarian and Romanian leaders. Uh, We want to help them grow in their personal study and public proclamation of God's word. And then we're going to the Bay Area of California. And then we're going to Kampala, Uganda. And then we're going to New England. Uh, That's kind of the 2024 plans. I am working on putting together an Irish version of the Expositors Collective that we're going to host in our own church since now we have our own facilities and so we're able to do that. So there's a lot of excitement uh, about 2024. And I would love for your prayers. I would love for your um, likes and follows and all that. But if you want to get involved in funding some of this, Uh, There are some activities that we do, for example, in California or New England, uh, those tend to pay for themselves. Uh, The registration fees of the attendees uh, cover the costs that have to do with putting those events on. But as we're going to Eastern Europe and Africa, those are things that we want to give as a gift to those local leaders. And so I'm asking you, if you are listening all the way to the end, why don't you pray about visiting our website, expositorscollective.com or expositors.co and visiting our donation page. Uh, Maybe you can invest in us as we invest in Eastern European and African leaders to help them grow in their personal study and public proclamation of God's word. And then it's going to create healthy disciples and flourishing churches. I would love for you to consider 
partnering with us in this. Uh, maybe even we could be part of your church's missions giving in 2024. We want to steward your money well, and I believe investing in new and upcoming Bible teachers and preachers and leaders is a fantastic way to expand God's kingdom in Eastern Europe and the U.S. and Western Europe. We want to do all that we can to help people grow in their personal study and public proclamation of God's word. Check out the links in the show notes. We would love for you to join us in partnering to do just that. All right. God bless you. New episode coming out next week. And I can't wait for you to listen. It's Tim Chaddick speaking about finding our own voice as teachers and preachers and how results are up to God. All right. God bless.